0: From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Donald Trump's big victory in the South Carolina primary on Saturday brings him a giant step closer to winning his third Republican presidential nomination. He romped over Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, by about 20 percentage points, as uh, fewer Democrats turned out than the Haley campaign had hoped in the open primary, though not without some signs of weakness for Donald Trump with a fair number of Republican voters. Where does the Republican race stand now? And how are Biden and Trump framing their messages as they aim for the November contest? Plus, with the Michigan's primary on Tuesday, can the Democratic anti-Israel left send a message? to President Biden. Welcome, I'm Paul Gigo with the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal here in our daily podcast, Potomac Watch, and I'm here with my esteemed colleagues, Kim Strassel and Bill McGurn. Now, welcome to you both. Big victory for Trump, no question about it. Kim, Haley just couldn't break through enough to really send a shock to the Trumpians. The Democrats didn't show up. Only 5% of the voters, according to the exit poll, were Democrats. She needed a lot more than that because Trump won among nearly all Republican voter groups, one exception being those who identified themselves as moderates. But what do you make of the overall strength of Trump. Any weaknesses you detect?
1: Well, a couple, Paul, but I mean, let's talk first about his strengths. If you looked at the exit polls in South Carolina, they looked a lot more like the Iowa exit polls than they did the New Hampshire exit polls. That was obviously not good for Nikki Haley. Those who identified as very conservative, 80% of them voted for Donald Trump. You saw the similar breakouts. Those who were college educated voted about 50 percent for each of the candidates. Those who lacked a college degree, about 75 percent for Trump. One other interesting thing, especially given all of the debate we've had lately about cultural issues, Trump shored up his share of white evangelicals compared to his showings in past primaries in 2016. He won almost three quarters of those. There are some issues, though, for him. There was a result very much matching what you saw out of Iowa, which is 36 percent of those voted said that they felt he would be unfit to be the president if he were convicted of a crime. That is not a small number. And if you look at those who voted for Haley, and this is both a comment on her but also a comment on him, about four out of 10 of those who voted for Haley said that they were doing it as a vote in opposition to Trump, not necessarily because they hugely adored her, but because they do not want him to win the nomination. And I think those are a bit of warning signs for him just about his ability to shore up the Republican base when it comes time.
0: Yeah, no question, Trump has really consolidated votes among conservatives. I mean, he just had a runaway support bill. He also dominated what were the voters' two big issues, the economy and, uh, even more important, immigration and the border. He just dominated that. And then that signature issue of the border for him has really helped him here because under Joe Biden, it's become so prominent in the minds of voters. And he has benefited from that. So no matter what Haley says. She'd be tough, too. She just can't outflank him on that one. But to elaborate on a point that Kim made about a weakness of Trump, Haley won Charleston counties and Richmond counties as a city of Charleston and Columbia. Those are suburban areas, relatively well off, where Trump has been weakest in previous races, not just in South Carolina, but around the country. Charleston and Columbia represent the country more broadly, I think, than the rest of South Carolina does, which is much more conservative than the rest of the country. That is something that some Democrats are pointing to as a sign that Trump is going to have a challenge with Biden.
2: Yeah, I think this race is fascinating because it's so different from 2016. In 2016, Donald Trump was a rich guy from Manhattan, desperate to prove he wasn't just running on a pirate flag convenience, that he actually stood for Republican principles. And many of his statements before he ran for president on defense, on guns, on abortion, were not the views of the Republican Party. You know, they were the views of a wealthy uh, New Yorker. So he had to prove his conservative credentials. And he famously came out with that list of Supreme Court nominees, uh, all originalists, good people, and that helped them a lot. This time around, the interesting thing is Mr. Trump's favorite epithet to hurl at uh, someone, now it's Nikki Haley, because she's the last one standing, is Rhino accusing her of not really being Republican. And I find it fascinating, because even if you don't like Nikki Haley, even if you think she's not the best representative, I think it would be hard to look through what she's advocating and find some deviation from classic republicanism. You know, strong defense, free economy, and so forth. Some don't trust her on abortion because she said the national wall would have no chance, but she describes herself as pro-life. She's a rhino, and she's not the only one. A lot of other people, DeSantis has been called a rhino, yet it's Donald Trump. Who now, like, I think if you look at the successes of his administration, they were classic Republicans low taxes, light regulation, a strong defense, and so forth, and little advancement of the pro life cause and looking out for the Second Amendment. All his victories and the victories that really delivered results for the American people were when he cooperated with Republicans on the Hill and pushed a standard Republican agenda. Now he's like, no trade deals, can't touch entitlements, you know, which is at the root of our out of control spending. And NATO is a bad thing because Europeans are freeloaders you know, no strategic discussion. And on policy, he seems to be emphasizing the parts of his agenda that weren't really a factor, that didn't really deliver for him. And yet he says he's not the rhino. Haley is a rhino. I think rhino has come to mean not as it originally meant someone who was moderate, or deviated from the conservative agenda. Now it means just Donald Trump doesn't like you. And he's kind of Louis Fourteenth, who said, I am France. I am the Republican Party. So if you disagree, you're a rhino.
0: One of the things that I think the press corps ought to retire is the line that somehow Trump is an insurgent taking on the Republican establishment. Trump is the establishment, full stop right now. I mean, when you can replace the head of the Republican National Committee as he is just by saying, I think it's time for her to go and even float the name of your daughter-in-law as a potential replacement. That's the establishment. When you can dictate to the House of Representatives that you shouldn't vote for Ukraine aid and they don't even take up a vote, that's the sign of who the new establishment is. And uh, of course, the members of Congress and policy makers, state officials all across the country have fallen in line. So let's drop that trope. Kim, I guess the big question for Trump is... How many of those Haley voters would not support Trump in November will stick to that? How many will come back into the fold if it's a binary choice between Trump and Biden, because you don't need much more than 10 percent of the Republican Party to stay home or vote for a third party or vote for Biden to make this a very, very competitive race.
1: Yeah. And in that regard, Biden might be Trump's best instrument at the moment, as it were. I mean, I think back, Paul, and I was there wandering around the convention in 2016 when there was still a sizable proportion of activists in the Republican Party that were determined to deny Donald Trump the nomination and were uh, maneuvering behind the scenes to try to do different rule changes and stop that. And yet, by the time the election came around in 2016, he had very much consolidated the Republican base. Now, people have their experience with him. They have some not great memories of him, especially on January 6th and the end of his term. Does that change things this time around? Or is Biden simply such a bad alternative that they will decide to rally around the leader in the end? By the way, and I want to throw this in about Haley and her campaigning, is if she's going to make a change, there were clear evidence in these exit polls that she ought to. She has been spending her entire time talking about how Donald Trump can't win against Biden. And I was fascinated to see that in the exit polls, six in ten voters in the primary said that Trump was very likely to beat Joe Biden, versus only 25% who believed Haley was likely to be Biden, which is just entirely opposite than everything you see in theoretical polling out there, where Haley is a far more bigger threat to Joe Biden than Trump ever is. Also, amazingly, only 60% of voters felt Haley had the mental and physical fitness to be president. And nearly 40 percent said no. And these numbers were less than Trump. It was pretty stunning stuff.
0: Well, she's 52. He's 77. You make your own call about who's more (laughs) physically fit, at least. The interesting thing about that is I think that that signals that the voters in South Carolina just believe that Trump won once to be president and he could do it again. And Biden is so weak, they think he can beat him. So you can, I think, credit Biden's weakness for people believing that. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about Nikki Haley's prospects going forward, not just in the primary, but what she is uh, hoping to accomplish here with this uh, presidential run when we come back. This message comes from
1: Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.
0: Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with Bill McGurn and Kim Strassel here on Potomac Watch. So uh, Nikki Haley has vowed on Saturday night to press forward with the Michigan primary on Tuesday of this week and then next week with the Super Tuesday primaries a week from Tuesday. Let's listen to Haley talk about the results on Saturday night.
3: Today in South Carolina we're getting around 40% of the vote. That's about what we got in New Hampshire, too. I'm gonna count it. I know 40% is not 50%. But I also know 40% is not some tiny group. There are huge numbers of voters in our Republican primaries who are saying they want an alternative. I'm not giving up this fight when a majority of Americans disapprove of both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. (laughs) South Carolina has spoken. We're the fourth state to do so. In the next 10 days, another 21 states and territories will speak. They have the right to a real choice, not a Soviet-style election with only one candidate. And I have a duty to give them that choice. We can't afford four more years of Biden's failures or Trump's lack of focus.
0: Well, Bill, she's still promising to run at least for the next eight days or so. On the other hand, Americans for Prosperity Action, the uh, Charles Koch Group, has pulled their funding for her. They've been big supporters of her and they still support her. They just said, we're going to take our marginal dollars and we're going to put them into competitive House and Senate races, which essentially means they're conceding the presidential race to Donald Trump. So unless there's a big breakthrough here, I think, for her in Super Tuesday or Michigan, probably her days are numbered. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I agree. It's an unusual year. It's always an unusual year when Donald Trump is in the primaries, right? He doesn't play by the rules. And I don't mean that necessarily he cheats or anything. I mean, he defies expectations and doesn't do what a normal candidate would do. And that has served him well in a lot of instances, also served him ill in some. But you never know. I thought maybe in the debates that when the Republicans would emerge, Trump shunning the debates kind of put them in second tier. If anything, Haley surged past DeSantis during those debates, kind of a minor development, but they didn't deliver anything big. Nothing in the general scheme of the primary was changed. I think the primary votes are not going to change things. You know, Donald Trump's a favorite. You know, whenever I hear someone talk about moral victories or defying expectations, I put the old L up in the column for loss. I rooted for too many sports teams where the announcer said it was a moral victory, (laughs) and I went to bed sad because they lost. That said, because Donald Trump is so unpredictable, and things around him just happened. And he has 91 indictments and all these cases. You never know if there's a mine on the way to the nomination. He could be blown off the tracks. It's not going to come from the usual way, which is a rival Republican candidate. But if he's blown off the tracks, she's not automatically guaranteed that she'd step in the breach, but she have a good case. I stayed in. I didn't quit even when everything was against me. And, you know, I stood for these principles. She would have a good case. If there's no convention, all bets are off. And I think both with Joe Biden and with Donald Trump, that's a real possibility.
0: Well, that would take a almost certainly a conviction in one of the criminal cases, I think, or some physical health issue. Hard to see what else could interfere there with Trump. Kim, she is communicating some delegates, not a lot of delegates, but more than anybody else. And uh, presumably we'll pick up a few more here as the next contests go forward the next eight days. What do you think her goal here is, both this year and then as it sets her up for a potential run in the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody can say at this point, barring a circumstance like what Bill suggests, something very unusual, that her goal can be winning the nomination. As you say, she has few delegates. She has 20. Trump now has 110. And going forward, the coming states are going to be very, very difficult. There are Five races before we get to Super Tuesday, a lot of those are small. For instance, all five people who are Republican in Washington, D.C. will go to vote in a primary. (laughs) But when you look to Super Tuesday, it's a very rough road for her to get more delegates because the RNC, as well as the DNC and Trump supporters in the RNC, have fixed the rules to make it very difficult for anyone other than the front runner to win. So a lot of those races are closed primaries, again, open only to Republicans. Most of them are winner-take-all scenarios. Some of these states have what are called bonus delegates. So if they are Republican-run in the legislature or the governor, they get additional delegates. Chances are by mid-March, he will have solidly got all the delegates that he needs to clinch the nomination. So I think she's setting herself up for a couple of things. One is possibly to be his running mate. That seems unlikely, given the animosity he has had toward her for staying in, although I think you could make a good argument for why that would be a stronger ticket. But maybe simply, and sometimes you see candidates doing this, setting themselves up for the next go-round. She obviously has cemented her name in Republican Party circles as a fighter and somebody who the party's younger could look to. So I think this is maybe a little bit more about preparing for the future.
0: Trump is not known for his grace in uh, victory, and he's probably going to hold it against Haley for continuing to stay in the race when it comes to his choice for VP. So I don't think that that's the uh, place for. I think one of the possibilities is that she's basically saying now Trump is going to lose. And if he does lose, she'll have standing to say, see, Republicans, I told you and now we need to move in a different direction. Of course, that depends on whether Trump loses or not. We're gonna take another break and when we come back, we'll have Trump laying out what his strategy is in the general election, at least giving us some hints, and a Michigan jolt to Joe Biden when we come back. High inflation has impacted many of us, but what happens when prices go up 55, 67, or even 276%? It makes living more costly, It eats into your paycheck.
2: At the end of the day, the salary itself, it's not enough.
0: And money quickly loses value. You can't save. You can't do anything. Check out our complete series on extreme world inflation from A to Z, from What's News, plus other exclusive content on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. That is, play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with Kim Strassel and Bill McGurn. Let's listen to Donald Trump at the Conservative Political Action Conference offer his themes for his uh, candidacy. If crooked Joe Biden and his thugs win in 2024, the worst is yet to come. Our country will go and sink to levels that were unimaginable. And just think about it. With four more years of Biden, the hordes of illegal aliens stampeding across our borders will exceed 40 to 50 million people. Medicare, Social Security, health care, and public education will buckle and collapse. It will collapse. As sure as you're sitting or standing there, it will collapse. Our economy will be starved of energy by Crooked Joe's vindictive Green new scam. It's a Green News scam it will be the destruction of our country. Well, there's a parade of horribles if I've ever heard one. I mean, his observation that Medicare and Social Security will collapse if Biden wins. Donald Trump is pledging not to do anything about those <laughs> programs. So I think they're on the road to collapse no matter who wins, whether Trump or Biden. But anyway, I think that gives you a flavor for what his campaign's going to be like, which is it's going to be the country is going to just be destroyed if Biden wins. And on the flip side, Biden is going to say the country will be destroyed, will no longer be a democracy if Trump wins. So it's really going to be a hell of a campaign.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Paul, you know, you mentioned Haley as VP. In the normal Republican year, the logical thing would be for her to be the VP, right? She has an important constituency where Trump is weak among Democrats and independents, they complement each other in, in a way their opposite strengths. But I think the personal animosity, as you say, is so big that I don't think he could do it. The other thing, the problem is, as I see it, people constantly cite polls saying most Americans don't want Trump versus Biden. I think that's true. But I think if you dig a little deeper, there are kind of different problems in both parties first of all, it underestimates that Trump is highly popular with a sizable chunk of the Republican Party, which Biden isn't. The problem is, though Trump's popular with that, he's really unpopular with the anti-Trump people more than Biden is. In other words, come election day, I suspect that Democrats, most of whom think he's too old to be president, would still rally around and vote for Joe Biden. I'm not sure Republicans, the ones who didn't vote for Trump in the primaries, would turn out for Trump that day. It'll be very interesting. It's another way how the rules are all changing. And in many ways, it's going to be who's worse, the choice of lesser evils, you know, who's worse for the country. And it's going to be very heated. No one's really making a positive case. I mean, Trump had some things he could campaign on, like the tax cuts. I lowered taxes. I turned back some regulations. He could do a lot of things, and he's not emphasizing those. I don't know why. And Joe Biden certainly isn't boasting about his agenda after he tried to sell Bidenomics, and it was a flop
0: all righty we'll have a lot more of course if in fact it is biden versus trump this will be the longest presidential race in history this is our fate bad career choices so we'll have plenty of time to talk about that kim i want to ask you about michigan because it's pretty interesting what's developing there we have the primary tomorrow joe biden's on the ballot doesn't have serious competition i guess dean phillips is also on the ballot the minnesota congressman but he hasn't caught fire but the movement on the left, led by Rashida Taleb, the congresswoman from Michigan and others, is to vote uncommitted in Michigan, to send a message to Biden that his policy towards Israel is opposed by a significant chunk of the party. Gretchen Whitmer, for example, the governor of Michigan, saying, oh, please don't do that. Don't do that. We need to give Joe Biden as much support as possible. Debbie Dingell, Representative from that Dearborn district, which is heavily Palestinian. I mean, she might be south of there now. But anyway, she's you know represented that district in the past. And she also said, no, don't do that. Vote for Biden. But how big a threat is this to Biden?
1: I think it's a real threat. And I find that absolutely fascinating. But... It is also an encapsulation of this presidency and what drives this presidency, which is fear of the left. Think about it. Joe Biden wasn't remotely rattled when Dean Phillips got into the race. Ostensibly, Dean Phillips is somewhat challenging him from the right you'd have thought that there was some in the party that would gravitate toward that, that Dean Phillips might be making more of a show than he is. So far, he's been a non-entity. And yet, instead, the big threat here is the squad, as it were, Rashida Tlaib, and this threat that because he's not dancing to the left's tune when it comes to Hamas and the Palestinian cause, that this could result in a very big embarrassment in a primary in which he's fundamentally running uncontested, but could have a very poor showing. And the follow-on dynamics of that are fascinating, too. I mean, this is why Whitmer's practically out there pleading with people not to do this. It'd be a big black eye for her if this is a state that really offers a rebuke up to Joe Biden. If she had any interest in sort of forward policies or forward platform in the party, that doesn't look well for her. And so we'll see how this all turns out. But I think it says a great deal, Paul, about where the center of power is, at least among those who are most vocal in the Democratic Party at the moment.
0: Well, the two big potential implications of a big uncommitted vote would be, one, a signal to Biden, that his hold on Michigan in November is in jeopardy. Trump has been uh, tied or leading in some of the polling against Biden in Michigan. Uh, Biden won that by about three percentage points in 2020, but it was a close race. Either one of those candidates are going to need, Biden in particular, is going to need Michigan. But the other implication before we get to November is how does this influence Biden's policies on Israel and the Middle East. I mean, you can see how Biden, his instinct was after October 7th to support Israel wholeheartedly, support the destruction of Hamas, understand that Israel needed to be able to wage war on Gaza, back Israel. But slowly, his policy has evolved, Bill. I'm going to give you the last word towards... criticizing Israel. He's now flipped the Biden policy on settlements in the West Bank, saying they're illegal. And now U.S. policy is opposed to any more settlements. He says we don't want the Israeli military to go into Rafah in Gaza, the last big stronghold of Hamas. So this vote in Michigan tomorrow could have a big impact on U.S. foreign policy.
2: Yeah, I already think it is. As you mentioned, Joe Biden has been sliding away from his initial strong stand on Israel to take. Sometimes they're not in public, but to advise Israel against its military operations and call for a ceasefire and said, what was it in the famous press conference at night after the special counts report? He talked about the over the top Israel. Right.
0: Over the top. Yep. And
2: i wrote a column earlier this year And I was saying, I think the Democratic convention this year in Chicago may look like the Democratic convention in 1968 in Chicago, when inside you had kind of sensible policies, Hubert Humphrey fighting outside the anti-war protesters bitterly clashed with police. And Humphrey was kind of caught. He was a traditional dove who had embraced a hawkish agenda in Vietnam because of Johnson, and they were stuck with that. I think Biden knows that. He's afraid of the left because they can make trouble, and they've already made a lot of worrying noises in the party. The letters from different people in the State Department, his administration, his campaign even, criticizing the policy. So I think that's really what he has his eye on.
0: All right. We are going to watch that carefully. Maybe the most drama on Tuesday evening in the Michigan primary. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Bill. Thank you all for listening. We're here every day on Potomac Watch, and we appreciate your patronage. Thanks for listening.